Here they come! Hello and welcome to episode 169 of Effectively Speaking, the podcast that takes a look at some of the special effects sequences of film and television, be they classic, average or duff. I'm your host Eric Moore and today I'm solo to look at the third earliest film we've focused on so far, 1911's L'Inferno. We're on express elevator to hell, going down. Two, one. Yep, so far we featured A Trip to the Moon from 1902 and the very first Frankenstein from 1910, but here we're one year later in Italy for their first ever feature film. Loosely based on Dante's Inferno, with Emilio Ronacarlo's cinematography being heavily based on Gustave Doré's depiction of the book, the film took three years to make. And until the internet age wasn't really available. Uh, there were stills, but that was pretty much it. But in 2004, uh, a newly restored version of the film combining British and American prints from the BFI National Archive and the Library of Congress was released on UK DVD by the Snapper Music label. That version was scored by Edgar and Jerome Free, excuse me, Frios of Tangerine Dream. Now, it's readily available, this film, on YouTube. The one that I watched um, for this show, uh, the title is Inferno, or L'Inferno, 1911, full movie with live score, 2016. Now, I don't know if the music on this version that I watched is the Tangerine, or sorry, Edgar and Jerome Frost of Tangerine Dream's score at the end of the film it does say uh, music by Mike Kiker so I don't know if Mike is playing the score or this is his take on it it is very Tangerine Dream um, I'll say that so that's what I'm using for uh, reference all right so uh, we're going to get into it so Dante, we have Dante in a wood. He's walking towards the Hill of Salvation. Now, of course, this is early 20th century filmmaking, so it takes its time. And as we've said before on some of the very early uh, films we've covered, there's lots of exaggerated gestures. This is very early days of cinema and an awful lot, lots of actors were still in the mindset of you go onto a stage and you have to over-exaggerate your gestures, gestures so the people at the back, you know, can get it, not understanding that the camera is going to pick up the slightest of gestures. So, yeah, lots of exaggerated gestures, and as I say, it takes its time. The film has an awful lot of flashbacks, and I don't know if the film was made you know, as, a edu ed as an educational piece. 
Um, there are historical characters that Dante encounters who will explain to Dante why they are there in hell. So I don't know if this was made, as I say, as a historical piece. I don't know if it was made with the church's influence that, you know, we've got to get this up on screen, you know, how to behave, what not to do, etc., etc. I don't know. So we're going to look at the film, looking at the special effects, um, because if you look at the etchings of Doré, the film is incredibly faithful to them, and there are challenges, if you're going to be faithful, how to depict certain things. So we'll pick them out as we go. The film has an awful lot of flashbacks to historical events. Dante meets people from history who will tell him in a flashback, um, you know, why they are there in hell. But I'm not going to discuss them. We'll just look at the special effects parts, right? So, okay, we have Dante. He's going up the hill of salvation. And the caption says that he's prevented from going further by three beasts. A panther, which represents avarice. A lion, which represents pride. And a she-wolf, that represents lust. Uh, the first one we see, and I can't tell if it's an effect or not. It's in long shot. It's black and white, and, you know, it's a, rather a blurry image. It could be a panther, but it looks very unreal. And all it does is back up away from Dante. If it's an effect, that's really good. If it's a tame panther, that's really good, but I don't know. Then we do have a real animal, a very skinny, it looks like an Alsatian. I think this is meant to represent the she-wolf. Um, we've got a very skinny Alsatian that uh, chases Dante away. Meanwhile, we've got Beatrice, an angel, uh, which is represented by a woman in white with what looks like a windmill uh, behind her head, going like the clappers. Uh, she instructs Virgil to go off and help Dante out, and he journeys with him to the gates of hell. They go through the gate to the river Acheron and meet Charon, the ferryman, uh, which is represented by a pool of water in a quarry, by the looks of it. But again, you go back to the etchings, that does look like a pool of water in a quarry. And Charon is the first man in a nappy we're going to see, and looks exactly like the Monty Python, it's man. And this is the first instance of having quite a fair bit of male nudity as the pair encounter people through history, such as Homer, as I say. It then becomes all very idyllic. We move from the quarry to some mountainside with grass and trees. And then we have Judge Minos. Now, Judge Minos is a chubby naked bloke with what I'm assuming is a black tail coming out of his backside and a crown on his head. He's right at the front of the camera, and in the background you've got a horned demon with trident and another man in a nappy. And I think what the film is trying to do is suggest that Minos is a giant. So, as I say, I think that's being represented by having him close to the camera, this demon, who I guess must be painted red. He's, he's painted, and I'm guessing he must be red. Um, in the background with a man in a nappy and uh, all very peculiar especially when Minos turns around and winks into the camera all very odd they move on they move past this they go down to the next level uh, sinners 
um, including Cleopatra and Helen of Troy. That's what the caption says. You don't really see them. Um, they're being blown through the sky endlessly. And this is quite an ambitious shot because there are multiple exposures going on. You've got Virgil and Dante on the left side of the frame and then strips of writhing people horizontally down the frame. Almost like a conveyor belt, if you like, of images of people. And they're meant to be blowing through the air endlessly. And that's when the film has its first flashback. Um, as I say, where selected people show their story of how they got to hell. So we go down to the next circle. This is the circle of the gluttons, guarded by the three-headed Cerebus, um, which the caption says is defeated by Virgil, bunging some soil in its mouth. And another ambitious bit of uh, uh, work, this. This looks to me like it's a, a sheep's body, obviously not a real sheep's body, but they've built a body the size of a sheep, and it does look like it's covered in uh, sheep's wool with three long necks, each one ended with a lion's head. And they are being moved by wire. Uh, you can see the wires, you know, they're, they're bobbing up and down, and the whole thing collapses when Virgil throws the soil in its mouth. We have no effects for the gluttons being tortured by endless rain. Um, and then we have Pluto, who guards the misers and spinthrifts. He's in close-up, and you can clearly see that it's a painted guy with cardboard horns. And again, he's right up to the camera. The, the pair of, our pair are in the background, and again, I think we're supposed to think that he's a giant. And uh, we get very OTT acting from all three during this bit. The City of Dis in the inner circle of hell is represented by a plywood wall and a gatehouse. That's all you see of it. One flat plywood wall and a gatehouse. The caption says three furies attack them. Well, they kind of like dance on the wall. An angel appears and opens the door for them and through they go. We have heretics burned forever in fire and suicides turned into twisted and gnarled trees. This is very odd. Uh, the trees are there, but the focus seems to be on these strange crow creatures that look either to be children or small people covered in feathers with beetle wigs on. And after another flashback, we find out that they're actually the harpies who peck at the trees to torture the souls within. I think next we have the biggest model effect of the film, um, the monster Geryon. The subtitles quote the book, his face the semblance of a just man boar, the rest was serpent all. Well, no, it's not. What we've got is a griffin. It's a, a totally and utterly a griffin, flown on wires, and is pretty good. This is 1911. That's not a bad model. After that, we get a nice composite shot of Virgil and Dante crossing a bridge over the River of Filth, uh, where the flatterers and the desolutes abide. We've got female nudity here now as well, as well as all the todgers that are on show. Um, we have, uh, yes, female nudity now. Um, and they just walk through all this. They walk across the bridge. It's almost like they're going through a garden centre. They're just like walking along, you know, looking at the displays. Quite a sweet effect are the summonists. They are people who sold church goods for gain. They're buried head down, feet up, tortured by fire, falling onto their feet. Uh, that's quite quaint, that. <laughs> You've just got a lot of extras uh, laying in a hole with their feet sticking up. 
they're chased by fire flying demons down to the next circle these these, these flying demons you know uh, you can't help but think of the flying monkeys in Wizard of Oz, which will be happening, you know, 20 years later. Down to the robbers in the snake pit. The snake pit, the, the, the snakes are obviously bits of rubber on wire. But then we get a real oddity as grafters come in. And um, one by one, they get approached by what looks like a stuffed lizard on a wire. We have a piece of freeze frame to stub- substitute the person for a dummy. And then we have another cut as someone is dressed as something, I don't know what it is, um, something scaly, walks away. So these giant lizards seem to be turning the grafters into lizard people, I guess. Next we have Virgil and Dante. Again, it's another composite shot. They are to the left of the frame again. And uh, they are standing by the entrance to a, a black cave mouth. And we have a number of people walk past in front of them. It's almost like a fashion show, you know. They, people walk along and then walk away again. And um, you've got a number of amputees, okay. People who, they're represented amputees by, uh, you can clearly see, even though it's a blurry image, you can clearly see that they aren't amputees. What they're doing is they're walking in front of this black background with their arms covered up um to suggest that they don't have an arm um one guy has got his nose cut off and you can see that he's got a piece of black felt or something over his nose to suggest that his nose has gone uh the best one is the guy who's got a leg missing um and he's meant to be hopping on one leg but you can see (laughs) he's actually hobbling and you can quite clearly see that yeah he has got a right leg still it's just covered in black material and also we have Mohammed arrives uh, with his chest torn open and the actor has a prosthetic something on his chest to suggest that. And I guess what they're trying to convey is that's his entrails hanging out. It looks like a huge you know, bunch of grapes or something hanging down to his groin area, but the entrails are coming out in his lung area. So that's a bit peculiar. Um... And then we have a guy comes in carrying his own head. And it's a long shot to begin with. And you can see what that is. is It's a guy carrying a dummy head. And his own head is covered up with black material. Because he can't see very well. So he's stumbling a bit. And then we get a close-up shot. And again, you can see, yeah, his face is covered up with black material. But his head now is a real head. The real head belongs to a person whose body is completely covered in black material with just his head visible and you know that's not 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 bad for 1911 that's not bad at all um quite inventive but of course i'm thinking you know in stage shows and things that this has always happened hasn't it you can you can mask things up and seen at a distance you wouldn't be able to see it and i'm guessing they were figuring it would be the same thing on film and you can sort of see it but I don't think a 1911 audience would have seen it next we've got the three giants Nimrod, Ephialtis and Antaeus um, again they are at the front right in the foreground with our actors in the background to suggest that these are giants I know now that they this is what they're doing because they are picked up Virgil and Dante are picked up 
um, and they're like little uh, action men, G.I. Joe size uh, dummies. And then straight after that, we've got a composite shot of the real actors alongside the legs of one of the giants, and the two are less than knee height to the giants. So, yep, they are definitely giants. Traitors, who are buried up to their neck in ice, is nicely done. And as the two walk along this ice field, they stop and talk to Count Agolino, who's chewing on the skull of Archbishop Ruggieri, which is pretty gross. Um, You know, the guy is gnawing away (laughs) quite uh, vigorously on this head. And cue the lengthiest flashback we get in the film. Quite a a long flashback story, that. And... uh, Then we're near the end, and the standout image of the film. As the pair continue across this ice plane, Satan is in the background. Seemingly filling the the horizon, or the whole chamber, I don't know what we're meant to be looking at. Um, He's a bearded, hairy creature with three pairs of bat wings, and he's gnawing on a human he has in his mouth. His eyes are bulging and rolling about. It's not a disturbing effect, more odd. Um, The actor's made up. You can see that he's been filmed with his elbows on a table and he's gnawing at this, you know, G.I. Joe action man size, you know, human. And, And it's hard to make out what happens next. The pair don't seem to see him, uh, but they approach him. As I say, he's gnawing away, he's looking left to right, his eyes are bulging. And they seem to descend into his body. The caption calls him the arch-traitor Lucifer with his three mouths in the centre. He holds the bodies of Brutus and Cassius. Um, I've seen, though, that there's meant to be Judas there as well. We really only see one. It looks like there's a body on his right shoulder, but um, we only really see one. Uh, because we have a long sustained shot, a close-up of the actor, of his face, uh, with a writhing body composited over his mouth area. I don't know if this was considered horrific uh, um, at the time. Um, Now it just seems all a bit peculiar. The film ends with Dante and Virgil emerging from a cave into the light, and a final shot of... The real monument to Dante in Trento, in Italy. And ends, as I say, by saying music by Mike Kaika. This is the first feature film ever to be shown in its entirety in one screening in the USA. Prior to this, uh, people, the, the thought was that audiences wouldn't be able to sit still for over an hour in a cinema. And this one, at least the... Uh, one I've watched on YouTube, has a running time of 71 minutes. And according to the People's Almanac Guide to the 20th Century, this is the very first film ever to show male front nudity, well over half a century before it turned up again in Women in Love. And there you go. Something a bit different for you this time, but, you know, the remit of the show is to do all manner of effects. And here we have one from the very dawn of cinema so yeah I I urge you to take a look I'll put a link to it on the Facebook page Um, it's only just over an hour of your time and if you cut out the uh, the flashback things it's even less
okay okay folks thanks for bearing with me and next time we're back to the world of television and the 1960s so see you then bye bye